Thank you, Kim. I'm going to start this morning. Well, we're returning to our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're also returning to our series within a series on the Lord's Prayer. I've turned the air conditioning off. Was that a mistake or I need thumbs up or thumbs down? All thumbs ups for now. Okay. I'm already hot again. So (laughs) anyway, uh, let me start with a a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was quite a a remarkable uh, man. I've been reading his work on the Sermon on the Mount as I've been preparing these messages. And uh, he wrote these words. He said, anyone who attempts to preach on the Lord's Prayer must surely find himself in great difficulty. There is a sense in which it is almost presumption to preach on it at all. One should simply repeat these phrases and meditate on them and consider them from the heart. For they themselves say everything. And the more I study this prayer, the more I believe that if only one used these phrases as our Lord intended them to be used, there is really nothing more to be said. Now, I'm going to say some more. But what Martin Lloyd-Jones' point is should be well taken, and it's this. These, these phrases in the Lord's Prayer, they are pithy, uh, they are short, they are memorable. Probably the most well-known words in the English language, and, and yet they are profound Everything we need to know about God and about prayer, we can find in the Lord's Prayer itself. They, they are packed. And what we've been trying to do is going through each, each one of these petitions line by line and trying to work out these implications. That's what we've been doing as we've been studying the Lord's Prayer. And we come now to a section which, uh, which you could say is like a grenade. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray these words, this petition, is actually, in some ways, very, very dangerous. Imagine if you you walked in on a kid who was playing with a grenade. And they're throwing it around, and they're tossing it around, and you're you're looking at this thing, and you're going, man, this thing, if this thing goes off, it's going to explode, and we're all going to be blown to smithereens. And then at some point, the kid grabs it and kind of looks it over and sees this, this round thingy and puts their finger in this round thingy, and all of a sudden, boom, they pull the pin. And now this thing's gone live. Well, in some ways, you could say that that coming to this petition, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is like pulling the pin of the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's now live, and, and what I'm going to try to show you is, is how, how dangerous it is, actually, to pray this petition. If we understood what Jesus actually meant when he said, this is how I want you to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we would tremble before saying those words, and we'd think twice because we're discovering that you should be careful what you ask for. So, we're going to look at this petition together. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount series, we did, uh, we did look at what, kingdom, what the kingdom of God looks like, what the kingdom of heaven is, and so I'm going to 
spend most of my time unpacking this phrase, thy will be done. But I, I do want to say at least three things about uh, the kingdom of God. And, and those three things are this. First of all, what is the kingdom of God that Jesus is saying? Thy kingdom come. What's this kingdom he wants to come? It's the kingdom of God. Well, what does that look like? Well, a kingdom is an administration, right? It's a rule. And Jesus, when he started his uh, ministry on earth, it says in, in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven. So he would say, repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he meant by that was, I have come as the true king, as the king of the universe, and I have come to establish my rule. It is here and now that, that I am inaugurating this kingdom on earth and he was calling people to enter that kingdom the kingdom of God you could say is found anywhere where God gets his way so it's found in an individual believer when a person becomes a Christian and and submits themselves to the authority and the rule of God that we call this the new birth being born again when that happens to a person they they see Jesus as the son of God who lived for them and died for them and rose for them and reigns for them and they submit themselves to him there you see the kingdom of God at work you see the kingdom of God at work in a church community when you see a, an entire community that that uh, confesses this Jesus as Lord and calls one another to live a life according to his design, that is the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is something that we can receive. The kingdom of God is something that we can enter into. But understand something, friends. The kingdom of God is not something that we can build. You might hear that language sometimes. You know, we're building the kingdom of God. We are not building the kingdom of God. Jesus is building the kingdom of God. And every time Jesus wins a heart, any time he, he takes someone out of darkness into his light, he is expanding the kingdom of God. You and I, as, as part of the church, we are a representation of that kingdom of God to the world. So when Dundas, the city of Dundas, the city of Hamilton, wants to know where do I find the kingdom of God, they're supposed to look at the church. They're supposed to look at, at you and I, where, where the, the kingdom kingdom of God is made manifest. But we didn't build that. We just entered into that. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that this kingdom of God is spiritual, not geographical. When Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, his disciples almost 100% surely thought that he was going to establish this kingdom in a particular earthly bounded area the the probably the 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 borders of the ancient uh state of israel that's where they thought this kingdom of god was going to come but jesus says his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom not a geographical kingdom perhaps if you know your bible well you know the story where jesus is before pilate and pilate is is kind of interrogating jesus and he says you know uh you, know, you call yourself a king and, and Jesus says, so you say? And he's, he asks him, where is your kingdom? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. The church is the place of this spiritual kingdom of God where God's rule is submitted to. And it's not something that happens in specific nations or states. So, so what I'm trying to say is, is Canada is not the kingdom of God. The United States is not the kingdom of God. 
And even though you and I want to see people come to faith and become part of the kingdom of God, it is not our calling to try to turn Canada into the kingdom of God, to try to turn it into a Christian nation, because that's not Christ's intent. Christ's intent is that that through conversion, people will enter the kingdom of God, and that's how his kingdom will spread. It's not going to spread through legislation. It's not going to spread through lobbying uh, political parties and, and, and governments, etc. It's going to come through the Spirit's work in human lives. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is, is that this kingdom of God is both present and future. We live right now in a strange Time. We live in what theologians call the already not yet. What do they mean by that? Well, it's the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Jesus came and established his kingdom in his first coming. But we don't see his rule uh, reigning everywhere at this point. It's not, it's not in its fullness yet. It's partial it's here, but it's not completely fulfilled. Perhaps the best way to explain this is to use the analogy of D-Day. Uh, in, on June 6, 1944, the Allied forces made the biggest invasion, military invasion in human history when they landed on the beaches of Normandy. And looking back, historians say that that was the day that the Allies won the Second World War. It was a terrible day. There was a lot of death and a lot of loss of life. But that was the turning point. You know, you guys know the TSN turning point? That was the turning point in the Second World War. And it was effectively won on that day. But between June 6, 1944 and May 8, 1945, which was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, there was all kinds of fierce fighting. Some of the worst fighting in the Second World War happened between those two dates. Even though on that first date, the war was effectively over, it took almost a year to have the, uh, the Axis powers finally sign a surrender. Well, in the same way, we are in between those two dates in the kingdom of God. Jesus has come and made the decisive victorious work happen in his death and resurrection and his ascension, but he has not fully established his kingdom. And right now, between, between then and then, between the first coming and the second coming, some of the fiercest spiritual battles are being fought. Maybe you experience that in your own lives. You say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I want to I wanna live for him. I know the incredible sacrifice that he has made on the cross for me, and I want to live for him, and I want to do his will, but I find myself constantly falling off the wagon or, or, or disobeying or, or straying from the path. It drives me nuts, but there's this thing inside me called my human nature, my natural sinful nature. The Bible calls it the flesh and it rises up in me every now and then and it causes me to do things that, that, that truthfully underneath it all I don't want to do. Yes, I want to do them because I think that they're going to make me happy but then I do them and I feel bad for doing them and I have to repent and say sorry and, uh, and I get all frustrated with myself. Well, this is the battle that you, every Christian is facing. It's the internal struggle of the that between the first coming and second coming of Jesus Christ, where the devil, the flesh, and the world are fighting their hardest, even though they know they're ultimately defeated. They say, I don't know if this is true, but the books I read say it's true, 
that an, a wounded animal that's cornered fights more fiercely in that context than it does in any other. Because it knows it's cornered, it knows it's wounded, it knows it's going to die. Well, that's Satan. That's his circumstances right now. He's wounded, he knows he's lost, and so he's going to do everything in his power to take as many of us down with him as he can. We're in the present of the kingdom of God and not the not yet. Or sorry, not the yet of the kingdom of God. If that confused you, just ignore it. (laughs) We're in the in-between times. That's all I want to say about the kingdom of God because I want us to spend our, our attention or focus our attention this morning on this phrase, your will be done. This is why, okay, all that stuff I just said about the kingdom of God, that creates the reason for praying thy will be done when we understand the kingdom of god in these three ways that i just described then we know why we're praying your will will be done pray god your will be done and this is what we learn from this phrase thy will be done every christian knows every true christian knows something and that's this obedience is hard but disobedience is impossible For you note-takers, I'll say it one more time. Obedience is hard. Disobedience is impossible. And this is something that only believers can truly understand. Let me explain what I mean. What is God, what is Jesus telling us to pray when he says, pray, thy will be done? Well, on the one hand, he's teaching us to pray that we would reject our will. For us to pray, thy will be done, is for us to admit that we need to reject our will. What is God's will? It's his desire for that which is to be. It's his, what he wants to happen in this world and what he wants to happen in our lives. And so for us to pray, thy will be done, is for us to want to, to, to need to reject our own will. Because you see, every human being who is born is born naturally in a state of conflict with God. We want to run our own lives. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots, right? We want to be in charge. Now, listen, most modern people in our culture hear that and say, well, yeah, what's wrong with that? Of course I want to be in charge. Of course it's good for me to make my own decisions. Of course it's good for me not to submit to some outside authority and do what somebody else wants. Every human being should have the right to decide for themselves how they want to live. Doesn't that sound good to you? Sounds good and normal to anybody in our culture, unless a Christian, you're a Christian. It doesn't sound good to a Christian, because a Christian understands that disobedience is impossible. Listen, here's why. God created the universe to run a certain way. And the way that he shows us how the universe is expected to run is by giving us laws. So we have physical laws, for example. The law of gravity. You and I just naturally obey the law of gravity. But what if you decided at some point to say, I, won't, I don't want to obey the law of gravity. I'm going to go to the roof of Grace Valley Church, stand on the steeple at the front there, and I'm going to fly off and I'm going to say, nuts to you, law of gravity. What would happen? Law of gravity would kick in anyway, and you would go splat. Well, God created the universe with other laws, too. For example, he created the universe with relational laws. 
He created us to have fidelity to one another, to, to live with integrity, to live with honesty, to forgive. These are spiritual laws around relationships that are just as, as true and certain as the physical laws around gravity. And if you say to yourself, well, I'm going to live a corrupt life. I'm going to be dishonest in my relationships. I'm going to be begrudging in my relationships. I'm going I'm to be unfaithful in my relationships. What are you going to do? You're going to ruin the relationship. You're going to ruin yourself. You're going to ruin the other person. When we violate the way God has designed things to go, he doesn't have to give us a fine. He doesn't have to come along and say, you have not followed the law, the spiritual laws of relationship. $100 fine. There you go, ma'am. I don't think you violate the laws of relationship. I'm just, I could have pointed anywhere. He doesn't do that. What he allows is he allows the consequences of you and I violating his laws to be effected on us. Just like gravity. You want to ignore it and step off the roof? Have at her. But you're going to experience it. This is why disobedience is impossible. Because it destroys ourselves and it destroys people around us. And yet, obedience is hard. And Jesus knows that. And that's why he teaches us to pray, thy will be done. What we're asking God to do when we pray, thy will be done, is we're asking God not just that we would reject our will, but that we would actually, he would actually bend our will to his. That he would make us want what he wants. And it's in this way that the Lord's Prayer is an absolutely brilliant prayer because this comes before give us today our daily bread. See, if, if we don't pray, thy will be done, before we pray, give us today our daily bread, if we don't do that, we end up asking, we end up trying to bend God's will to ours. But we ask this first in order that when we ask for our daily bread, we're asking it according to his will. You see, everything that has come before, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. These things come before thy will be done because we're, we're putting our will, our desires, our wants in this, this furnace of God's love to be shaped, to be molded, to be formed in such a way that our desires reflect his desires. Think of a blacksmith. What does he do when he takes a, a piece of metal and he wants to form it? He puts it in the fiery furnace, right? And he blows the bellows and he heats it up and then he pulls it out and then he pounds on it. And that's precisely what we're doing when we say our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name thy kingdom come thy will be done we're putting our wills in prayer into this furnace of God's fatherly love and, of, and reflecting on his glory and his majesty and we're trying to stoke that fire until our wills become moldable shapeable malleable so that they reflect the will of our heavenly father Oh yeah, and I mentioned the pounding. To pray, thy will be done, is a dangerous, scary thing. Who wants to go into a furnace? Who wants to be pounded on by the hammer of God's love? It's God's love but it's still a hammer. 
But think about something, okay? When we don't first pray, your will be done, and we go straight to give me, give me, give me my daily bread, oh, how are we treating God? We're basically treating God kind of like a computer, you know? Like input, output. Right? We input the commands. These are the needs I have. These are the wants that I have. Input, God, give me today my daily bread. And out come the results. Or think of it this way. If you first pray, give us today our daily bread without praying first, thy will be done. Essentially, you know, you're not really praying a Christian prayer. Think about this. You don't have to be a Christian to ask God to give you the things you want. I've known lots of people who I've tried to share the gospel with and ask them if they, if they uh, are interested in submitting their lives to Jesus, and they say no, but they're quite happy when they're in a jam to pray. To ask God for healing, to ask God for protection, to, to, to ask God to get them out of a bad spot if they're in a jam. A lot of people could do that. We can all do that. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. I mean, it's like the genie in the bottle. You rub the bottle, genie comes out. It's magic, right? No, not the bottle, the lamp. Genie's in a lamp, not in a bottle. What genie would want to live in a bottle? Come on. You rub the lamp, the genie comes out. Your wish is my command. Here's what I want. He makes it happen. Whoosh. Then he goes back into the lamp. Here's what it means to pray, thy will be done. This is, this is a prayer written by Pascal. Some of you maybe have heard of his name. He was a 17th century scientist and theologian, an absolute brilliant genius. This is what it means to pray, thy will be done. Listen to this. I ask you neither for health nor for sickness, for life nor for death, but that you may dispose of my health and my sickness, my life and my death, for your glory. You alone know what is expedient for me. You are the sovereign master. Do with me according to your will. Give to me or take away from me. Only conform my will to yours. I know but one thing, Lord, that it is good to follow you and it is bad to offend you. Apart from that, I know not what is good or bad in anything. I know not which is most profitable for me, health or sickness, wealth or poverty, nor anything else in this world. That discernment is beyond the power of men or angels and is hidden among the secrets of your providence, which I adore, but do not seek to fathom. Who in their right mind would pray that prayer? I mean, I'm pretty sure that wealth is better for me than poverty. That health is better for me than sickness. And wouldn't you say the same? But what that demonstrates, friends, is that we have an incredibly narrow perspective and a, and a limited ability to see what, what is really needed for us Come on. How many of us who are truly followers of Jesus Christ and over 
I don't know. I don't know what age you have to be. But a true follower of Jesus Christ is able to look back and see even in the hard things and the, the bad things and the, the painful things and the difficult things. Okay, I'll just tell you a story. In my old church, I knew a man who was in a cycling accident. Was it a cycling accident or a car accident? He was in an accident and he broke his neck. And for the next four years, he was in agonizing pain from terrible, terrible uh, migraines that caused him to throw up and spend half the day in the dark, complete darkness with absolute silence and occasionally he would go to the washroom and just puke in the toilet and it was pretty agonizing pain. And uh, I would visit him and he would talk about the pain and how unbearable it was and, and he struggled with it. And I couldn't understand, I couldn't understand how there could be anything good in this in any way. And at the time, it was dark. It was awful. He, he thought his entire life was over. But slowly, he started to improve. Very, very slowly, he started to improve, etc. Ten years later, I'm visiting with this guy, and he says to me, with all seriousness, and I still stand in awe of it because I, I, it's not my own experience. I don't know if I could ever say this, but he sits across the room from me, and we're talking about his experience, and he looks me in the eye, and with all seriousness, he says, I thank God that he broke my neck. And I'm like, what? Why? And he said, because through that, I have experienced his love and I have a relationship with him that is so deep and is so beautiful and is so satisfying. And I know that there is no way I could have had that any other way. Now, he could not have said that when he was in the middle of it. He could only say it coming out the other side. And sometimes people don't come out the other side. They sit in it for a very, very long time. And maybe they sit in it almost for the entirety of their lives. But even when they end up in glory, Paul says, he says that, that well, I'm going to quote it for you rather than try to paraphrase it myself. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Friends, the Apostle Paul, this is a guy who was stoned almost like within an inch of his life, who was whipped with the 40 lashes more than once, who was shipwrecked and thought he was going to drown, who, who was run out of town constantly, who knew what it was like to be uh, respected by the community and be a, a leader and have everybody look up to him. And then when he became a follower of Christ, to be completely cut off from that community and made a pariah. This is a guy who knew hardship and he calls a lifetime of hardship, a lifetime of hardship, okay? Not just the odd little tough spell that he goes through now and then, but an entire lifetime of hardship. He calls that a light and momentary trouble. And he says that God is achieving Achieving, meaning using those so-called light and momentary troubles, our hardships, achieving a glory that far outweighs them all. Teresa of Avia said once 
that when we stand in glory in the last day in the presence of the living God, it will make an entire lifetime of suffering feel like spending one bad night in a lousy motel. Do as you see best, Lord. Thy will be done. Now that's, that's a modern person's worst nightmare, right? Because we think, we don't say this, but we think that basically we should have a, a pretty half-decent life. A comfortable life. It doesn't have to be extravagant. But it should at least be comfortable. And Jesus says, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are those who hunger and thirst for comfort. Happy are those who seek God's will. Not happy are those who seek their happiness. That's, that's what Jesus teaches us. Thy will be done. Now, how do you pray this prayer honestly? Like you mean it. I, you probably can't. <laughs> I can't. I confess it's very, very hard for me to believe I could do this. But Jesus didn't just pray this prayer or teach us to pray this prayer. He, he did pray this prayer. You remember the night in the garden before he goes to the cross in the garden of Gethsemane? What did Jesus, what did Jesus see there? I don't know if you've ever seen footage of the 2004 tsunami that hit Thailand and Indonesia and all these places. I watched a movie recently about it, and it's about this family that's vacationing uh, on the beach in Thailand, and they see this, this wall of water coming, they don't know what the heck is going on. This thing is like stories tall, and it's just hurtling toward them, and then this, this wave smashes into the land, and I tell you, nothing, nothing can stand in its way. It's just inexorable. It just keeps coming and coming. It is relentless and it is unstoppable and it devastates anything and everything in its path. And when Jesus was in the Garden of Eden and he was, at, not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane and his father peeled back just a little bit the tsunami that he was to face. That tsunami from 2004, that's just a dim reflection of, of what Jesus was going to face. The tsunami of God's wrath for you and for me. And he asked his father, is there any way out of it? And his father says, no, there's no way out of it. And Jesus said, thy will be done. Your redemption came through his submission. So that you and I can pray to our Heavenly Father, your will be done. You can lay down your will, you can lay down your commitment to your own autonomy. The one thing the culture says you should never, ever, ever do, you can do it. Yes, obedience is hard, but friends, disobedience is impossible. There's a, another theologian writer by the name of George MacDonald, and he, he said something very interesting at one point. He said, there's two kinds of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God will finally one day say, thy will be done. You want life without me? You want to be cut off from me? You want, to, want me to leave you alone? 
so be it. Friends, that's hell. What if, what if the earth was cut off from the sun? What would happen to it? Desolation, right? Everything would freeze and die and darkness would reign over everything. Well, that's when we're cut off from the light of God's face when we say to him I don't want your will to be done I want my will to be done at the end of time friends he's going to say everyone gets what they asked for but do you know what you're asking for I appeal to you this morning those of you who have not said to God thy will be done look at the cross of Jesus And see how much he must love you to be willing to face the tsunami of God's judgment for your sin. And trust him. And lay your will at his feet. Because he he will not abuse you. He will not take advantage of you. He will not suck the joy out of your life. In fact, the very opposite you will know a joy beyond the walls of this world, something that nothing in this world can give. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, conform our will to your will. Cause us to want what you want. Enable us to trust that when when we give up control of our lives, in fact, it's in that where we find true freedom when we look to you and seek to do your will rather than our own that's when we find true satisfaction father thank you thank you that thank you that jesus doesn't just teach us what to pray but he prayed these things himself for us on our behalf and and as an example What a God you are, Father. (laughs) You don't ask us to do anything that you haven't already done yourself. We stand in awe of you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.